If uh, you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Romans. We come this morning to Romans chapter 9. If you're visiting with us, we have been, uh, we're in the middle of a preaching series through the book of Romans, and uh, we've been going at kind of a snail's pace, especially through Romans 8, sometimes doing like just one or two verses at a time. Uh, Lori said to me that some of, you, some of you may be feeling like we're going to be in Romans till death do us part. And uh, so you'll be happy to know that we are taking a, a bigger chunk of text this morning, Romans 9, verses 1 through 18. So that's, we're just sailing right on through uh, Romans 9, 1 to 18. Lori also said I should tell you that I was planning on preaching Romans 9, 1 to 18, but we are actually only going to cover verse 1 this morning. That's not true. I'm not going to do that. We are actually going to cover all 18 verses. So uh, before I read, I invite you to bow with me as we ask for the Spirit's anointing on his word. <clears throat> Lord God, how good it is to gather in your house to worship. And how good it is, O oh Lord, to be able to, to come together to your word and to listen, Lord, uh, to what your word says we we honor you, O Lord, as the revealer of yourself through your word. And I pray that you, we would have hearts that are humbled before you this morning, that would trust in the authority of your word as it's been revealed to us. I pray that you would give us eyes to see and give us ears to hear and give us hearts to receive the deep truths of your word. O Lord, may they be planted deep in us, May you give us not only a deeper understanding of this difficult and mysterious doctrine of election, but Lord, may you draw those of us who need to be assured into a deeper assurance. And might you, O Lord, awaken those who have not yet been awakened to a true and saving faith. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I invite you to stand, if you're able, for the reading of God's Word this morning. Romans 9, 1-18. The Apostle Paul says, I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. It is not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. 
Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. You may be seated. <clears throat> a few years ago, we were <clears throat> at a miniature golf course in Door County, and it was one of those warm, sunny, beautiful, late summer days. And, and out of the blue, uh, the, the wind came up and the sky turned dark and, and the temperature dropped about 20 degrees. It was the most dramatic and sudden shift in weather that I've ever experienced. And that's kind of how I feel this morning as we transition from Romans 8 into Romans 9. Though, of course, it has nothing to do with the weather. We see that same kind of, of sudden and, and dramatic shift. Romans 8 took us to the to the soaring heights of, of all these spiritual blessings in Christ that we've been looking at the last several weeks. No condemnation, children of God, co-heirs with Christ, the hope of glory, more than conquerors. Nothing in all of creation that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. These, these soaring, beautiful truths and spiritual blessings in Christ. And then we get to Romans 9. And there's this dramatic change in tone that the mood completely shifts. Paul goes from these soaring heights of triumphant hope and assurance in, in chapter 8 to what he describes at the beginning of chapter 9 as great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart. And the change is so sudden and so abrupt that some biblical scholars see Romans 9 through 11 as a sort of extended parenthesis in the letter as sort of a, a digression. Uh, they, see, they see the book of Romans as, as eight chapters of gospel in the beginning and four chapters of application at the end and then this sort of this puzzling digression in, in between. Others see Romans 9 through 11 as sort of a traveling sermon that Paul had written and preached in other churches and just sort of plugged it here into Romans because he didn't know quite where to put it. And as we'll see, these... All of those theories are, I believe, false. These chapters are not a parenthesis. They're not a digression. They may or may not have been a sermon that Paul had used, but whatever it was, he, with intention and purpose, put them at this place in his letter. They're integral to his theology and his purpose in writing the book of Romans. Now, the reason... The reason for this shift in mood is a problem, a problem that is close to Paul's heart. And the problem revolves around the, 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 the people of Israel and God's sovereign choice in election. 
And that's, and that's, we're going to, so we're going to linger here for a while in these, in Romans 9 through 11, this, this doctrine of election and, and how that plays out with Israel. Uh, but the, the, the problem revolves around Israel and God's sovereign choice in election. And as we'll see that the problem, this problem calls into question the very character of God. And so as we walk through this text together this morning, we'll see, we'll see First, the problem that, that causes Paul such deep anguish. And then we'll see two questions about the character of God that this problem elicits. And then we'll end with three responses to Paul's teaching. So one problem, two questions, three responses. So we begin with the problem. Hold on one second. My PowerPoint isn't working. Let me try this again. Okay, there we go. All right, so we begin with the problem, which Paul describes in verses 1 through 5. And in a nutshell, uh, the, the problem is, is Israel's unbelief. That's, that's in, in a very succinct statement, that's the problem, Israel's unbelief. You see, Paul has, has laid out the, the beautiful hope and the assurance that comes through faith in Christ all throughout Romans 8 and the, and the chapters before. But the problem is, most of the Israelites have rejected Christ, that they have not come to faith in him. They, they have not received him as their Messiah. And so Paul says, in verse 2, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. And, and he states his anguish in, in the strongest possible terms. He says this, he says, I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. In other words, what Paul is saying is that if, if it were possible, I would be willing to be condemned. I'd be willing to be damned if only that would save my people Israel. And so that's the problem. Most of the people of Israel are forfeiting God's blessings because they have rejected Christ. Instead of celebrating him as the promised and the long-awaited Messiah, they have ridiculed him and, and hated him and, and persecuted him and, and killed him. They are missing out on all the beautiful things that Paul has been describing because of their unbelief. And Paul's anguish over their unbelief is all the more bitter because of all of the privileges that the people of Israel have enjoyed throughout redemption history. And Paul names eight specific privileges that God graciously gave to Israel. So he says, and you'll see them in yellow, theirs is the adoption to sonship. All throughout the Old Testament, God calls Israel his son and refers to himself as their father. There's the divine glory. Israel had this, this unique privilege of, of, of God manifesting the, the, the splendor, the, the visible manifestation of his holiness as they wandered with him through the wilderness. And then his glory filled the tabernacle and it filled the temple. Theirs are the, the covenants and the receiving of the law and, and the temple worship and the promises, promises of, 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 a, of a Messiah, promises of a kingdom, promises of blessing and, and favor, promises to be God's people living in God's place under God's reign. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. 
And so these are the the great privileges that the people of Israel had. They had a front row seat as God carried out his redemption program through them. If if anybody was going to have an automatic in to this this next stage of redemption in Christ, it it should have been Israel. They've They've been there for the ride all along. And what a shame, Paul says, that now they are missing out on the great climax of God's redemption in Christ. So this is the problem that causes Paul such deep sorrow and anguish. It is the problem of Israel's unbelief. But underneath that specific problem, there is an even deeper problem. The failure, the the unbelief of Israel calls into question the very character of God. And it raises two major questions about God. Number one, is God unfaithful? Does does all this mean that God is unfaithful? And number two, is God unjust? And Paul addresses these two questions in the remainder of our text this morning. So first, is God unfaithful? You see, God had promised blessings and favor to Israel. Did he fail to follow through with his promises? Did he fail to keep his word? And Paul answered that question in verse 6 when he says, It is not as though God's word had failed. So God is not unfaithful. His word has not failed. His word, in fact, always accomplishes the, the purpose for which he sent it and the purpose for which he ordained it, as the prophet Isaiah has said. So it's not that God failed to keep his promises to Israel. In fact, his promises do hold true for Israel. But here's the critical thing that many fail to understand, and here's the critical thing that Paul needed his Jewish and Gentile audience to understand, and that is that God's promises to Israel were always meant to be fulfilled, not in ethnic Israel, but in the true Israel, the spiritual Israel, the true children of Abraham through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul puts it this way, In verses 6 and 7, he says, For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. And Paul goes on to say, It is not the children by, by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. Those, in, other, in other words, those who receive God's promises through faith in Christ, those are the true children of Abraham. And Paul made the same point to the Galatians when he said in Galatians 3, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Or as John the Baptist said to the crowds of Jews who came out to be baptized, he said, do not begin to say to yourselves that we have Abraham as our father. Don't begin to rely on your own physical ancestry and heritage. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. Or as Paul said earlier in Romans back in chapter 2, he said, a person is not a Jew who is one, who is one only outwardly. And nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, he says a person is a Jew who is one inwardly and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit. You see, the the, the point that Paul is making is that not all in ethnic Israel are true Israel. There is a distinction between Israel within Israel. There is the ethnic outward Israel and the the, the true inward Israel. 
Not all physical descendants of Abraham are the true children of Abraham. Now, now I'll put this in, just tuck this in your minds for later on. There is, God does have a plan for Israel as well, for ethnic Israel as well. There will be a, a plan to bring back many of the Jews to faith in Christ. We'll get, we'll get there later on in Romans. But Paul needs us and needs his audience to understand this critical distinction between ethnic Israel and the true spiritual Israel. The true Israel is defined not merely by physical ancestry, but by those who truly belong to God. And so Paul's point is that God is not unfaithful. His word has not failed. It was indeed fulfilled in the true Israel. But this raises then a follow-up question, that is, if it is true that our identity as, as children of God is not a matter of, of physical descent, but is then, you know, but, but a matter of, you know, this, uh, the, the spiritual reality, then, then, then what is the determining factor? So if, if, if you're not in by physical descent, then, then how is it that you, be, that, that, that you are in? How does one get to be a true child of God? How, how does one come to be part of the true Israel? And Paul's answer to that question is that it's determined by God's sovereign choice. It is not determined by anything we do. It is something decided by the sovereign will of God. And to drive this point home, Paul uses the example of Jacob and Esau. He says in verses 10 to 13, that Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. So same, same mother, same father, same time, two babies growing inside their mother's womb. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose and election might stand, that is not by works but by him who calls. That's the purpose of election. It's not by works, it's by God. It's initiated by God alone. Rebecca was told the older will serve the younger. Before, before they had done anything, before there was any, they had even been born. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Those are some of the most difficult words, I think, in Scripture. That last statement comes from the prophet Malachi, from Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. And, and there's really not a, there, there's not a, great way to soften it. It's a, uh, it, it is an idiomatic expression that, that highlights, so that the point of the saying is that it highlights God's sovereign choice of Jacob as the recipient of his covenant favor and blessings. And so I think there, in some sense, there, there's a way that, you know, it's, the, the point is not God saying that I, I hate Esau. The point is God saying, I have set my electing love on Jacob and not on Esau. But, the, but what Malachi is saying and what Paul is reiterating here is that it's, it's purely by God's sovereign choice. The point is that God set his electing love on Jacob and not on Esau. He passed over Esau. And the basis of this choice was not on anything that Jacob or Esau had done, for it was made before they were even born. It was a choice based entirely and completely on the sovereign will and purpose of God. So this is how true children of God are determined. It is by God's sovereign choice. It was his sovereign will and purpose to set his saving love on some of the Israelites, but not all of them. And so God is not unfaithful. His promises to Israel have not failed. His promises are fulfilled in 
the true Israel, which is determined not by physical ancestry, but by his sovereign choice. Now, that then, when we begin to digest that, it raises the second major question, which not only, especially Paul's original audience, but in our own hearts and minds as well, and that is, well, is God then unjust? It kind of seems like it's a hard thing to digest. Is God unjust? If God, in his sovereign will, chooses some but rejects others, doesn't that make him unjust? Paul says in verse 14, what then shall we say? Is God unjust? And his answer is that emphatic expression that we've seen before in Romans, me genoito, which, which is by no means, uh, uh, not at all, you know, God forbid. It's a strong a very strong way to say no, that, that is not absolutely God is not unjust. To defend his answer and to defend God's justice, Paul points to God's mercy. And this is, again, this is critical to, to Paul's theology and to our understanding of election. So let me kind of lay it out for you. At the heart of Paul's argument in defense of God's justice is the idea that all humans are sinners who are deserving of God's wrath. That's the starting point. If we don't get that, we are, we're, we're going to be off the rails. So all humans are sinners who are deserving of God's wrath. This is the point that Paul made earlier in the letter. He took a long time establishing and making sure we got that point in the, in the first few chapters of Romans when he said that all humans are under the power of sin, that no one does good, no one seeks God, there's no one who is righteous, not even one. And therefore, Paul said, all are deserving of God's judgment. And that being the case, there is then no injustice in God's sovereign choice to save some, but not others. He is not unjust to anyone. His sovereign choice to save some is an act of mercy, granting them a gift that they don't deserve. And his sovereign choice not to save others is an act of justice, giving them the judgment that their sin does deserve. Now, to illustrate that point, Paul again turns to Scripture, and he uses the examples of Moses and Pharaoh. And so he says, uh, for God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Now, in this saying to Moses on Mount Sinai, God was revealing two things. Number one, that, that mercy is central to God's character. My, my name is mercy, God said, and the name is an, is an essence, the very essence of his being. And so mercy is central to the very being of who God is. That's the first thing that God was revealing. The second thing was that God exercises his mercy by his sovereign choice. He is not moved to mercy by the works of those to whom he gives it. In fact, the context of this saying to Moses, which is from Exodus 33, the context makes that very clear, that it has nothing to do with, with the, the objects of mercy. The context is this. The people of Israel 
So, so Moses had gone to meet with God on Mount Sinai, and he was gone for 40 days, and the people of Israel got restless, and they got, they got impatient, and so they had Aaron fashion them a calf, and they turned to this, this they, they were just reveling in their idolatry at the foot of the mountain. Well, Moses is gone, make us a calf, and we'll worship that in God's place. We'll, that'll kind of represent God, and we'll still be worshiping God, but we'll just do it through this, this calf, which is a very clear violation of God's will. So they're reveling in idolatry at the foot of the mountain, and God says, I want nothing to do with them. I'm done with them. He was so, so angered by their idolatry, and Moses pleaded with God to relent. And God relented and promised that he would stay with them and continue to go with them. And it was out of that context that God said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Even on these people who are right now at this moment at the foot of the mountain reveling in their idolatry, there, there was nothing in them that would have moved him to mercy. And so his, God's decision to stay with him and to show them mercy had nothing to do with any good he saw in them. It is by his sovereign choice that he has mercy on some, not giving them the judgment that they deserve because they deserve judgment. But Paul goes on to say that, that others do get the judgment they deserve. He mercifully saves some from their hell-deserving sin, and he justly leaves others in their hell-deserving sin. Paul uses the example of Pharaoh. And he says this, For God says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Now, if you remember the story of Pharaoh, Pharaoh was holding God's people in bondage in Egypt. Then God raised up Moses to lead them out. And we read in Exodus how Pharaoh hardened his heart towards God's saving purpose for his people. He would not listen to God's message. It came to him again and again, and he would not listen to the message. He would not let God's people go. But as we see in the Exodus account, behind Pharaoh's hardening of his own heart was the sovereign hand of God. For sometimes in the Exodus account, we read that Pharaoh hardened his own heart, and sometimes in the Exodus account, we read that God hardened his heart. And of course, both were true. The hardening of Pharaoh's own heart makes him culpable for his own sin. But in the end, his hardening was ultimately a matter of God's sovereign choice. I mean, God could have softened Pharaoh's heart, but he didn't. He left him in his hell-deserving sin and gave him over by his sovereign choice to his own, to his own hardened heart. And he did this to fulfill his own sovereign purpose. There was a purpose that God had in mind. And so he, by his sovereign choice, hardened Pharaoh in his own hardening to fulfill his purpose. And so Paul concludes that, therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. It's all entirely and completely in the sovereign will and purpose of God. So is God unjust? No, not at all, Paul says. By his sovereign choice, he deals with, with all people. Either The only two options are either in mercy or in justice. 
We can think of it this way. Suppose that all people who have ever lived and ever will live are represented by these little smiley faces within this blue circle. So this is all of humanity over the course of all of time. This is all people who have ever lived and ever will live within this circle. Now we know from the earlier chapters of Romans that all of these people, that all people are under the power of sin. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All are by nature rebels against God and deserving of his judgment. If God deals with these people justly, they will all be condemned. Now what God has done in election is that he has mercifully chosen to rescue some out of this doomed, condemned condition. We don't know why, he chose to save some and not others. That is information that lies only in the sovereign mind and purpose of God. But what we do know is that his sovereign choice does not make him unjust. Those who are saved are treated with mercy. Those who are not saved are treated with justice. That is a proper understanding of election and critical for our, us as we'll move forward a proper understanding of election in the broader context of the book of Romans. So we have seen the one problem with, with, uh, of Paul's anguish over Israel. We've seen the two questions that this problem elicits about the character of God. And I'd like to conclude this morning by turning our attention now to three responses to Paul's teaching on election. The first response is to be humble. I mean, the doctrine of election leaves no room for human arrogance. The doctrine is shrouded in the mystery of God, and we can only approach it from a stance of humility. That's the only, the only fitting way to think about and approach and talk about the doctrine of election from a stance of humility. Some speak of it as if they know everything there is to know about it and, it, and as, if, as if it's the easiest thing in the world to embrace. But they have not, if that's the way they talk and think, they have not grappled with the deep questions that it raises and they have not grappled with the hard truths that it implies. If you think and talk as if you know everything there is to know about election, then you most certainly do not know everything there is to know about election. Now, there are others on the other side of the spectrum who, who just reject it in the spirit of, of arrogant defiance. And they say, well, you know, if, if God is a God who chooses some and not others, I want nothing to do with a God like that. I can't... I can't you know, I, I, that's, that's not a loving God. That's, I, 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 I could never worship a God like that. And both of those responses, either just a sort of a flippant, oh yeah, of course, it's, it's, it makes all the sense in the world, or I, I want nothing to do with that kind of God. Both of those responses come from a place of human arrogance. What is needed is for us to be humble enough to acknowledge that God is God and we are not and that, that we might embrace the mystery of things we do not understand. As Paul will say just a few verses later in the next section of Romans, he'll say, who are you, O oh man, to talk back to God? 
Does not the pottery have the rights to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? In other words, get a, get a right understanding of who God is. God is God, and we are not. And it is within God's rights to, to do things that we don't understand. It's perfectly within God's right to, make, to have some people set apart for his favor and for his special covenant blessings and have others set apart for, as Paul will say, destruction. We may not like it. It may be super hard for us to digest and, and grapple with, but it's within God's sovereign right, and it's our responsibility and our place simply to embrace those things, to embrace the mystery of a God who, whose ways are not our ways and whose thoughts are not our thoughts. In the language of C.S. Lewis, it is not our place to put God in the dock. He is the almighty judge and sovereign God of the universe. It is our place to humble ourselves before him and to trust him even in the face of things we don't understand. The second response is not to worry. I mean, there's a lot of people, I think, that fret over the doctrine of election. The doctrine of election is meant, it's intended to be a doctrine of great comfort and, and assurance to believers. It is meant to be a comforting doctrine. If you are fretting over the doctrine of election, then you are not, then you are not grappling with it or not understanding it the way it's meant to function. As one commentator put it, if you are concerned about whether or not you are among the elect, then that concern itself indicates an interest in salvation, which is a sign of God's electing love. And we're also not to fret over the question of whether or not our loved ones are among the elect. We are to be faithful in our witness and faithful in our care and then leave the rest in the hands of God. The third response is to join the mission. One of the critical things to understand about election is that throughout redemption history, God's election is never an election to complacency. It, it is always an election to mission. Always. God's election is an election to mission. God chose Abraham to be his agent of blessing to the nations. God chose Moses to lead his people out of Egypt. God chose David to establish a kingdom that would never end. God chose Daniel to be a, a light of God's provision in exile. And when we get to the New Testament, that same pattern continues. Jesus chose his disciples to go out and to make more disciples and to bear kingdom fruit, Jesus said, that would last. Our election in Christ is an election unto mission. And so to be among the elect is to be set apart and sent out to advance God's mission in the world. And if you're not doing that, if you're not actively and devotedly participating in God's saving and kingdom-building mission in the world, then you are not living out your calling as God's elect. So in the end, as in all acts of redemption, and as we prepare for communion this morning, this doctrine of election leads us to the cross. Again, as, as do all doctrines tied to redemption, so it was at the cross through the blood of Christ that God 
secured his chosen people in the unbreakable grip of his love. It's at the cross that we find the, the deepest answers to Paul's two questions in our text this morning. Is God unfaithful? Well, the cross is dripping with proof of God's faithfulness. Is God unjust? The cross stands as a powerful display of his justice to some and his mercy to others. We see at the cross the, the, the incredible display of God's justice and mercy together. We see the cross dripping with his mercy. So we can say, those who are in Christ can say with the psalmist in Psalm 103 that God does not treat us as our sins deserve. For as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. And so praise be to the God of election, the God of faithfulness and mercy, who has rescued us for his glory. Let's bow together. Lord God, we, we praise you for who you are. And I pray this morning, O oh Lord, as we come before your throne in a time of silent prayer and response and as we prepare our hearts for communion. Oh Lord, lead us to an even deeper understanding and a deeper appreciation of who you are and of this difficult doctrine of election. Lord, give us a deeper trust in the face of things we do not understand. And I pray, O oh Lord, that you would draw us into a deeper awareness of your faithfulness, that you are not unfaithful, that the very center of your being, central to the essence of your being, is mercy. And I pray, O oh Lord, that you give us a deeper understanding and a deeper gratitude for the fact that you are not, it is against your character to be unjust in any way. For you are a God who deals mercifully with some and justly with others. Oh Lord, lead us into these truths as we come before your throne in this time of silent prayer. Lord God, as we come forward for communion this morning, I pray, O oh Lord, that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit. And I pray, O oh Lord, that you would lead us to the cross of Jesus Christ, that we might see more clearly and receive more deeply the cross as the means by which you, O oh Lord, have secured your chosen people in the unbreakable grip of your love. And may we see at the cross 
the profound truths of your faithfulness and your mercy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.